Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a glorious morning on Remembrance Sunday at Honister Car Park with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Morning, David. What a lovely morning. It's not as frosty as I was expecting, actually. No, but there's plenty of ice around, isn't there? And first proper dusting, really, of winter. There's over about, what would you say, 1,500 well, feet? We've got a, 1,500 feet, there's a little sprinkling of, of, of snow. And in fact, I went up yesterday evening where I live and I could see the Chiviot was white. Was it really? Right, uh, whereas yeah. everything else wasn't. So there's a bite in the air. We got up at the crack of dawn. I was up at 6 o'clock. You picked me up at 7. So we're here for dawn breaking across the high fells and got lovely pink clouds over the Helvellyn range and unusually for seven o'clock at this high altitude car park it's a hive of activity there's probably 50 or so cars here already and they're they're still steadily coming in people snaking up the fell side there and the reason for that mark is because of remembrance sunday isn't it yes this is a significant moment particularly for mountain lovers because the high fells here great gable scorefell pike were gifted to the nation as a war memorial the fell and rock club have uh, always from i don't know how many years have uh, had this service to reflect on the sacrifices that were given by members of the club and therefore represented of the many people in society who gave their lives to give us the freedom to wander the hills. This commemorative memorial service on Great Gable that happens annually at 11am on Remembrance Sunday, and we're heading up for that now. So our route today, Mark, which route onto Gable are we taking? Well, there are various ways that people climb Great Gable ordinarily, and on this particular day, people do tend to come from... Uh, Heathwaite is very popular. A few people come from Wasdale Head, greater since. Whereas from here, uh, Hollister Pass, it's uh, a 2,000-foot ascent and three miles. So this is the elevated approach and is very popular. And the British Legion run the car park here so that uh, uh, they get uh, full advantage of this popular elevated start. And uh, we usually get... 300 cars parked here. Is that right? It yeah. really gets okay. crammed in. We're up to 100 now, so it's coming on. And who are we going to be joined by on this walk today, Mark? Well, he's somebody I've never met before, but uh, Dr. Jonathan Westaway from UCLan, University of Central Lancashire, who studied the history of climbing. Let's go and meet Jonathan now and set up up to Great Gable on Remembrance Sunday. It's a fabulous morning here, Jonathan. Wonderful view. I'm looking uh, east towards Helvellyn with the dusting of snow on that range. But uh, behind us, we've got the crags of Dale Head with uh, an incline on it, part of the slate connections with the Hollister crags. And in the car park below, there's nearly 100 cars down there. And there's uh, various clusters of people 
making their way up the mountain, beginning the journey. Now, Jonathan, you're a man uh, of the hills. Uh, well, yep. Where do you come from? Uh, well, I, uh, I came to university in Lancaster. I'm a, I'm a southern lad and I started mountaineering when I was at university and uh, completely fell in love with the hills of the Lake District. So, uh, yeah, but I'm now a historian who uh, focuses on mountaineering and exploration. You're, in a sense, you're like me, a southerner who's fallen in love with the hills. Absolutely. Uh, and these hills are rather special oh. and they mean a lot to lots of people. So your particular fascination with mountaineering, what sort of areas have you covered? Well, um, you know, as we see people streaming up the hillsides today, I've been focusing on the Fellum Rock Climbing Club of the English Lake District and their efforts to commemorate their fallen club members after the First World War. And, of course, this ended up in the, the uh, memorial that is uh, situated on Gable Crag. How long has that service been enacted? The memorial was dedicated in 1924, but the club was actually talking about a suitable memorial for club members during the war from 1915 onwards, really, Crikey. as increasing numbers of their, of their fellow club members died and were, were recorded in their kind of role of honour in the FRCC club journal. Uh, there were some quite intense debates about the best way to commemorate fallen club members. You can understand it was such a trauma and such a closely knit group of people. There's a very poignant entry into one of the club journals where the editor W.T. Palmer talks about uh, an everlasting memorial in the eternal hills for fallen club members. And then it's, uh, it always gets me, really. Mm. Um, in the journal, his wife butts in and she says, um, my husband couldn't carry on writing this edition of the journal. He was so moved. Uh, and she had to finish that edition of the, of the club journal for you, him. So. You can understand the effect on the whole of the community of climbers. Well, I think there was a strong sense that only the landscape will endure. And there was a, a lot of contemporary comparisons between the, the horrors of the Western Front and what that did to the landscape mm. and how it churned up and traumatised the landscape and the landscape of home, which they all knew and loved. So, mm. yeah, yeah. The club, the FRCC, made a very uh, strong link between the sacredness of the landscape and the sacrifice of the men on the Western Front. Mm. You know, you can't have a sacred place without sacrifice. Mm. And, you know, that, uh, that was very, very important to them. Well, that's a, an intriguing start to our journey, Jonathan. Um, I'm looking forward to further comments, but we'll, I think we'll join the general flow of pedestrians who are climbing the hill. The sun's beginning to warm us now, Jonathan, as we come up the brow. We've come up 300 feet. We're looking back again to Helvellyn and the sunlit crags around us. Now, I'm reflecting on that English Lake District Fellow Rock Club's birth, as it were. Who, who are the people involved with it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, it was founded in the winter of 1905, 1906, very much by... Um, kind of middle-class people in the northwest of England, uh, uh, and there was a strong sense that they wanted to celebrate their local upland landscapes. There'd mm -hmm. already been mountaineering clubs, which had been um, founded in the Peak District, things like the Kinder Club, uh, the Rucksack Club, the Liverpool Wayfarers Club, and things like this, who, mm -hmm. who looked to the Pennines, but there was felt to be a need for a club that celebrated the distinctive cultural landscape and mountaineering approaches 
in the Lake District. And they thought of it as being Lancashire, Cumberland, Westmoreland. Yeah. Did the mountains draw the counties together in a way? Yes, it's interesting. If you look at um, kind of travel books like W.G. Collingwood's The Lake Counties, he wasn't. He called it the Lake Counties. <laughs> yes. There was a strong sense of county pride. Yeah. These are our hills. So if you worked in a clerk's office or a solicitor's in Manchester or Liverpool, you know, Coniston Old Man and Dow were Lancashire Hills, you yeah. know, and you had to go and uh, they offered an opportunity to escape from the kind of uh, disillusion and pollution, uh, the industrial ills of modern society. And they had a very strong sense that this was a renewal movement. Mm. This was about bringing people together in the hills. They were pioneers in their spirits. It was a very risky business. You know, rock climbing was emerging and distinguishing itself from mountaineering. They were approaching steeper rock faces out of the gullies. Mm. Uh, and the techniques and the equipment was very, very primitive, so yeah. it was dangerous. Uh, and this is one of the things they were very concerned about because mountaineering deaths were starting to uh, threaten the possibility that this activity could be regulated, that landowners could close off access to the high hills. That's one of the reasons why they were so worried about memorials to dead climbers in the oh, hills, you know, because quite. it makes it absolutely explicit. This is a dangerous business. Yes. There was a very famous case on Eagle's Nest Ridge Direct on Nape's Needles on Gable where somebody fell off and died, I think in about 1909, and the and Rock Climbing Club put out uh, specific instructions about how people should approach routes after that because it was felt some routes were so risky and so dangerous you needed to practice them on a top rope or climb with somebody more experienced than you. So there was a sense that there was a middle class urge to manage access to the outdoors and make sure that everybody was prepared for the risks and challenges so That's the advantage of a club because it, uh, it was like a training ground. I have a great love of the hills, but it yeah. comes from being a member of a mountaineering club yeah. where you learn from the elders yes. of the club. It was felt that you needed an apprenticeship, mm. you know, and rock climbing, you know, was so dangerous that, you know, you couldn't let everybody loose on, you know, approaching some of these harder routes in the Lake District. So, Absolutely. yeah, a strong sense of stewardship. So they come up for week-long holidays or periods of time. What sort of things did they do? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've got to remember that most people's leisure time, most people's holiday time is very, very limited. So it might be Christmas, Easter, a few weeks, at, a week at Whitson, some weeks in the summer. Um, and there were a few honeypots that they were all attracted to. So, of course, Wasdale Head Inn at Wasdale, you know, you get off the train at Ravenglass and climbers would walk up to Wasdale and quite often they'd find the place absolutely packed out, no room at the inn, you know, they'd have to sleep on the pool table. It was a very male culture. There's a fantastic book by a, a woman travel writer in 1914 called Nancy Price, who walks there. She walks into the dining room at Wasdale Head and about 100 men stand up because she's the only woman there, you know. Uh, you know, women did climb at the time, but uh, quite often in many of these clubs, they couldn't be full members. I've seen pictures of ladies and they had long dresses. Yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. the men out with their britches and well, of course, women did. Women alpinists, of course, were you know there were very eminent women mountainists, and and once they left the village in the Alps, they'd take off their skirts and wear bloomers, of course, mm -hmm. so that they could climb. And mountaineering was actually uh, a kind of free and liberal domain where many women could experience something like equality with men. You know, uh, there were some amazing female mountaineers in mm -hmm. the 19th century. We'll plod a bit further up the hill because we've got to keep up with this crowd, You're right? Right, you 
Well, we've broken away from Drum House onto the path that leads up the shoulder of Grey Knots, and uh, soon we'll be venturing on towards Moses Trod, actually. But we've got a majestic view to the west of Pillar, Haystacks, High Crag, High Style. Very little snow there, but very craggy, very wild, and a blue, crystal blue sky with little fluffy clouds. Now, falling back to our story about mountaineering, those early climbers, they'd moved on in a sense from that poetic age. They were part of a hands-on environment. Yeah, absolutely. We can thank the kind of lakes poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge for really a, a kind of paradigm shift, a, a new approach to the hills. They weren't just content with looking at the hills. They wanted to touch and feel the hills and experience them. So Coleridge went on an amazing nine-day walk in, in the early 1800s and he gets stuck at one point on Scarfell and has to descend Broad Stand. And some people Ooh. claim that's the origins of rock climbing in Britain he actually had to physically climb down this crag and you can begin to see over the 19th century people approaching the hills in a new way you get vigorous cultures of hill walking growing up in the Lakes Counties uh, Pillar Rock that we can see in front of us yep. now became an object of desire because you had to scramble up it there was no other way you couldn't just walk there you had to use your hands to get to the top of it and then by the 1880s we're beginning to see a kind of new almost gymnastic approach to the crags of the Lake District and Nape's Needle on uh, Gable was very much seen as, as a major transition point. To climb it you have to be athletic, gymnastic, strong and there's no summit to attain. You know it's purely done for the joy of movement uh, and climbing. It reminds you of the Dolomites, the pinnacled crags Absolutely, of the Alps. Yeah, yeah. This is the one sort of summation of it in the Lake District. There's one yeah. moment. Of course Nape's Needle became instantly iconic because it was photographed and those photographs were reproduced in London in magazines and it became symbolic of the Lake District. So the Abraham brothers of Keswick, the famous photographers, knew very well what uh, Nape's Needle would mean to the tourist industry and they, and they used it and they reproduced it. And you can see today it's still on, um, you know, tourist uh, literature in the Lake District. It's on the FRCC climbing guidebooks. The first person to climb it, Walter Perry Haskett Smith, uh, soloed it, of course, you know. So he was, uh, he, was, he was a young man at university. He was up here on a reading week, which was very common, where you'd come with uh, dons and other scholars to study your Latin and your Greek prior to exams. Uh, and he just charged around the hills. As we pause a moment, Jonathan, it's just lovely to see the gentle flow of people casually walking by. Very poignant for them all to be here. And, and the outlook here is majestic. We're looking down on Buttermere and Cremote Water. And I can see the sea right the way down there towards Maryport. And uh, you can see up into Scottish Hills. You sense a sense of emotional connection here. And these early climbers, did they have a sense of that? I think, yes, very strongly. I think in the 19th century, there was a general crisis of faith amongst the, the liberal middle classes and mountains very much became a substitute. You know, they were the closest thing to the eternal. You know, they were mm. massive, they inspired awe, they were inscrutable and they represented some of that lost kind of certainty, I think, for many of the upper middle classes. And of course, when we get to the, uh, the First World War, people started to link these very special landscapes 
these sacred landscapes with the sacrifice of the men who'd given their lives in the First World War. That sense of loss, how did that impact on people? Of course, there was an incredible burden of, of grief for a lot of people. Uh, and there's a really interesting case, Siegfried Herford, uh, the famous climber, he died in 1916, but one of his former climbing partners was on holiday in the Lake District, on leave, on army leave in the Lake District in 1916, and he claims to have met his ghost on Scarfell. And he, he wrote to Siegfried Herford's mother, uh, explaining how convinced he was that this was actually, he'd had a meeting with uh, Herford's ghost. So there was an enormous psychological burden on people to repopulate the hills with so many people who've been lost and wouldn't be coming back. So you can sense from that the, the incredible need to have this kind of coming together in the hills in the Lake District. Herford was one of the cutting edge rock climbers. In 1914, he climbed Central Buttress on Scarfell with George Sansom and Holland. And it was the hardest rock climb that had ever been done by a long way. Uh, in the British Isles. It was a major step forward and very poignantly it happened just as war was declared uh, and he only survived uh, another few years and his name is up there on the war memorial. Yeah and a very interesting background he was from an Anglo-German family in Manchester. He had this very mixed identity and during the First World War you know he had to make decisions about which side he was on. Well, we've just climbed over the one stile on the whole route, which is rather fun. It's a pinch point on the route. Everybody's coming here and coming into the sunshine. And we got our first really clear view of Great Gable and Green Gable ahead of us to the south. And, uh, of course, to our right, Kirkfell and Wasdale Red Pike and Scopefell and Pillar and all that wonderful stuff. And uh, we're into the sun and we're reflecting on the actual process that the club got into to establish this mountain as a special place. So during the First World War, club members were dying and there was a, a vigorous debate over how best to memorialise them. Uh, and it got quite heated at times. There were letters written to the Manchester Guardian about whether the club had any right to think about putting memorials in the hills. And there was a strong conservationist consensus uh, in the club that actually forms of development in the mountains that you saw in the Alps, like um, huts and shelters and trails and cairns, was completely uh, unwarranted in, in this romantic landscape. And so eventually they came up with the idea of purchasing some of the high fells and donating it to the National Trust. Lord Leckenfield had already donated land above 1,500 feet on um, Scar Fell as a war memorial in 1919. Mm -hmm. And the club began to uh, put a call out for money to see whether they could purchase some of the higher summits around Great Gable. Uh, the Musgrave estate came up for sale uh, in uh, about 1919, 1920. They tried desperately to buy bits of it. It was eventually bought by somebody else, but they approached him and he agreed to sell all the high fell land on the, on the Musgrave estate to the club. And the club donated it to the National Trust in 1923 and then they dedicated uh, the bronze memorial plaque in the summer of 1924. Right, and I think that tied in with Mallory and Irvin, if it I remember did. rightly. It did, yes, yes. So I think it was on the 8th of June, 1924, and they had a very moving ceremony on the summit of Great Gable. Uh, the poet and climbing doyen, Geoffrey Winthrop Young, 
uh, provided a very moving elegy uh, mm -hmm. where he talked about this uh, place as a space of power and light where only memory would endure, mm. uh, that physical memorials uh, wouldn't, but only our memory of club members would. Yeah, and it was on the same day on the North Face, uh, on the Wrongbook side of Everest, Mallory and Irvin were last seen heading towards the summit of Everest. So this is coming together of events is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, and the fact that it runs on to today. It would be an interesting thing to imagine the, the climbers in the Wasdale Head Inn uh, in the age of Will Ritson, the famous liar. <laughs> what sort of uh, people were they? Well, they were very diverse, you know, they were largely middle class from the industrial uh, cities of the north, but they'd also be academics from Oxford and Cambridge and London. They'd be higher professionals, solicitors, bankers, they'd be businessmen, they'd be office clerks from Liverpool. Uh, you'd find a very mixed bunch sitting down to, to dinner in the Wasdale Head Inn. And of course, it was a very uh, playful environment as well. They uh, got up to all kinds of hijinks. So there was famous traverses of the billiard room on uh, where you had to go round on the on the picture rail and, <laughs> and cross the uh, cross the door frame, uh, uh, traversing on the outside of the barn. You know, very early form of uh, climbing wall. Yeah. Uh, so lots of hijinks going on. Lots of kind of very clubbable, very male environment. Yeah, Wasdale Heads right at the seat of the club, uh, but later on the old Dungeon Guild ODG. Uh, I remember that was when I first got into climbing <laughs> quite a while ago. Uh, but that, that was a centre of uh, climbing activity. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly after the First World War, you start to see more uh, people from what you'd call working class backgrounds entering into uh, climbing, rambling, mountaineering. They've got more leisure time. Uh, you get the birth of the Coniston Tigers, of course. Mm. People who worked in the shipyards in Barrow, uh, but had their own club and their own approach to the Lake District. And uh, yeah, places like the ODG, people like Sid and Jamie Cross, and uh, were very, very important working class climbers, you know, who began to... Uh, make their mark in the Lake District and were very influential in the origins of mountain rescue in the Lake District as well. Well, we come onto the stony top of Green Gable green because great swathes of it are still grassy, unlike Great Gable, which is <laughs> pure rock. Uh, we're looking at the north face, which is in deep shadow. But the general view from here is probably, uh, in all honesty, better than Great Gable. You've got a view right through to Wernside and Ingleborough, beyond Windermere and the Langdale Pikes, and the Howgill Fells, I can see those. Right the way around Fairfield, through to High Street, the Helvellyn Range, heading north, see the North Pennines through to Coldfell, uh, and then I see Blencathra, Skidder. I'm scanning round, you might judge this, to the north. And then I can see High Style through to the Irish Sea and uh, the Galloway Hills, and uh, Pillar with the Pillar Rock in beautiful silhouette, and uh, Scotefell and Steeple and Kirkfell, and that brings me round via Sea Talon to the Gable Crag. Now, we're in the flow of people here, all coming from all sorts of angles. A few coming up Stony Cove, I see. Some coming up Aaron Slack, <laughs> the Aaron Slackers. None of them are slackers coming up here. It's a tough climb, 
Some are coming up Base Brownway. Those are coming up from Wasdale, up via Stiehead up the Brest Route. A whole gathering of people. Now, the generation that set this up back in the 1920s are long gone, basically. But there's new generations of people, Jonathan. Yeah, that's what's so extraordinary about this, I think. As, as that generation is gone, the great generation of the Second World War is going, this memorial service seems to be even more important for members of the outdoor community. You're seeing uh, families up here, children, and they're being brought here to be reminded about what this place means. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we've got to that stage in our whole journey. Before we get to the summit, we're going to do a quick fire with you, Jonathan. Um, what is your uh, favourite Cumbrian fell? Oh, goodness me. Uh, I'm very partial to Weatherlam and the Tilberthwaite valleys around there. Yeah, very beautiful. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Uh, have you a favourite lake? Oh, yeah, Overwater, north of Skiddaw. Yeah, right. not many people go there. It's beautiful. Yeah, it means the lake of the bird. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you get great cock up next to it. Yeah. What is your very first Lakeland memory? Gosh, um, I grew up in Kent and I came up to the lakes with a friend of mine when we were about 14 to go camping and hiking and we had 200 pound rucksacks that we could barely lift and uh, spent most of the time just throwing stuff away so uh, it was a good learning exercise. I think it was, <laughs> so if you were to spend one day on a Lakeland Fell with somebody from history who would you choose? I think Coleridge would be quite good fun. He seemed to have been um, uh, out of his mind on uh, laudanum and brandy on one of his kind of uh, exploratory vision quest walks through the Lake District. So I think he'd be good crack. Yeah, I definitely. Would, <laughs> you, keep, you keep him away from broad stand anyway. <laughs> so if you were Prime Minister for a day yeah. uh, and you could influence something that's connected with Cumbria, what would you do to make a difference? Goodness me. Um, there are kids in schools on the west coast of Cumbria, which is an area of multiple indices of deprivation, who have never been to the Lake District. And I think that's an absolute crime. I think there should be more funding for outdoor education, for, for local education authorities. Uh, and we shouldn't be living in a world where kids living in West Cumbria don't even know what the Lake District is. Well, Jonathan, it's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed your company. Uh, I've learnt a huge amount. I hope we will meet again. That's fantastic. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you. Yeah. We'll leave the summit of Green Gable, dip down the steep slope into Windy Gap, which isn't too windy today, and climb up with the crowd, experience the act of remembrance on the summit of Great Gable. Yeah, we gathered on the top. Everybody is in conversation in advance of the act of remembrance. And there's tents, there's a banner down there, a flag on the pillar side of the mountain. And the mountain rescuer here as well represented Wasdale and uh, the commitment to save people's lives, which is part of this humanity of a mountain. You see a majestic array of hills all around us. Uh, even this. Snayfell on the Isle of Man has got its appropriate little cluster of white snow on the top, justifying its name Snayfell. I can see the summit of Scorefell Pike, uh, which, like this summit, is a part of the great war memorial that was a gift to the nation, connects us with the sacrifice and also our commitment to these wonderful wild places. And there's all these people here, a huge gathering, and uh, we're about 10 minutes away from the actual act. 
Uh, I'm with a, a, a gentleman who's carrying a bugle, and I gather he's going to play. And can you give me the story behind it, who you are, and what's brought you here today? Right, I'm Buzz Dixon, and uh, four years ago, um, I was involved in a car accident, and I brought me back. Uh, whilst um, in recuperating in hospital, I was challenged by one of my comrades who I used to be in the army with, and he challenges to walk again and to play last post on the top of the mountain. And here I am today, playing last post on the top of the mountain, uh, after more or less recovering from a broken back. Well, that's, that's a phenomenal story. Which route did you take to get up here? From the um, slate mine. From the slate mine, yeah. I yeah, that, The easiest route, obviously, because of injuries. Well, that's it. And where do you come from originally? Where do, where Sunderland. You? Sunderland. You're a so, Mackham. Yeah, Mackham. So right. Yeah, uh, Mackham's Mackham. Yeah, Mackham's your Tackham. <laughs> yeah, well, don't you? Well, we're still in advance of the actual act of remembrance, but I'm with Ron Kenyon, who has been president and has done this service himself. Um, what conditions like when you did it, Ron? Well, I was president about three, three four years ago, and the president has two years as president, so they have two services to, uh, to do. Now, the first year, I actually went and fell off a crag somewhere, hurt my ankle, and I couldn't get up which is not very good. Uh, Winthrop Young got here with one leg. <laughs> and I got up with, I wimped out, so I was a bit of a wimp, really. Anyways, the next year I came up and it was horrendous, absolutely horrendous weather. And I don't know how many people were there, we couldn't see many people. So we got up here as late as possible, <laughs> shouted, probably about 40, 50 people or so, and then got the hell out of it really, because it was just so so windy and Absolutely. so wild. Actually, quite a charming day today, but by comparison with the two or three years ago when you actually oh, did it, yeah, what yeah. amazing story, Ron! Thank you for that. Thank you, much. thank you. So as we gather together, just before the service, uh, we will hear the voice of Dr. Hattie Harris, president of the Felon Rock Climbing Club, and this is her second of her two-year stint uh, performing this act of remembrance. Good morning. Welcome to you all and thank you for attending this act of remembrance. The date and time commemorates the ending of the First World War at 11 o'clock on the 11th of November 1918. At 11 o'clock today, I shall ask everyone here to remain silent for two minutes. I represent the Felland Rock Climbing Club. This plaque names those of our members who lost their lives in the 1914 to 1918 war. Their true memorial extends far beyond the plaque. In 1923, the Felland Rock Club bought a vast tract of land above 1,500 feet from Kirkfell to Lingmail. All of this area was gifted to the National Trust to hold on behalf of the nation. To these names, we add the memory of all known and unknown 
who have been killed in armed conflict or by terrorism. Our club wishes this observance to have neither political, national, military or denominational overtones. This act of remembrance is private and personal as well as collective. I ask you to join me now in two minutes silence to honour those who have died. Thank you.
journey's end and we're back in the car park at Honister Mine and the clouds very slowly starting to build now after what's been an absolutely perfect morning the little scattering of snow up there blue skies and amazing visibility all the way over to the Isle of Man but a, a very poignant service Mark. Oh yes it's always a lump in my throat a feeling of great joy of being with a, a, a body of people who are there similarly uh, emotionally tied into the setting and the, the moment in time. Lovely to have today the context given by Jonathan uh, about the reason for that dedication, that those early pioneering years of mountaineering up here, uh, the kind of breadth of people who, who came up from all over uh, the north of England in particular, they, they were heady days. Well, after the heights of Gable, for our next country stride, Mark, we're, we're doing something slightly different. We're, we're going to the M6. Now, to talk <laughs> us through that. <laughs> well, everybody ends up on the M6 sometime in their lives, but actually we're going to sneak under it and go and find a really ancient woodland. Right. And uh, we're going to be with somebody from the Cumbria Wildlife Trust who will introduce us to what are, in effect, the lost words the words from the Oxford Junior Dictionary, the acorn and conquer and so on, uh, heron and blackbird and all sorts of things like that, which have been weeded out of the dictionary as, as contemporary words like analogue of podcasts have come in. It represents a change in society that needs to be sort of fought against. The lost words, uh, and particularly, yes, nature, trees, wildlife in Cumbria that... Lots of young people now are, are losing. They're divorced from. They're, they're divorced from. Losing connection with the landscapes and the wildlife around you and how we might reconnect that. So that's the next episode of Country Stride, which will be out in a couple of weeks. A reminder that if you enjoy this episode and you're new to Country Stride, you can download over 20 previous episodes from our website, which is www.countrystride.co.uk. You can find us on social. Where are we, Mark? Oh, Facebook and Twitter, at Country Stride 1. Still never quite worked out why we're Country Stride 1 rather than Country Stride, but uh, the mystery will be solved one day, perhaps. Uh, but Country Stride 1, please do uh, get, get in contact. Do send us a message. And a final request, if you like what we do here and you're downloading from iTunes, please do give us a, a little uh, write-up there or click the five-star review. Um, it's a way for us to, to reach new people who might enjoy the podcast and who love these landscapes that we all love. Um, other than that, we're saying goodbye now from Honister uh, in the aftermath of a lovely service on Great Gable.